Hi everyone, welcome back to Logical Bible Study. In this podcast, we're all about looking at the gospel from today's Mass and having a look at the literal sense of the text. What does the text mean on the most fundamental level? What do the words mean? What was the author trying to get at? All of those are the kind of things that we try and help you understand in this podcast. Today we're looking at a text which will be familiar to uh, many of you Catholics, so let's jump into it. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. Mary set out and went as quickly as she could to a town in the hill country of Judah. She went into Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. Now as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She gave a loud cry and said, Of all women, you are the most blessed, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why should I be honoured with a visit from the mother of my Lord? For the moment your greeting reached my ears, the child in my womb leapt for joy. Yes, blessed is she who believed that the promise made her by the Lord would be fulfilled. And Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit exalts in God my Saviour. Because he has looked upon his lowly handmaid. Yes, from this day forward, all generations will call me blessed, for the Almighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name, and his mercy reaches from age to age for those who fear him. He has shown the power of his arm. He has routed the proud of heart. He has pulled down princes from their thrones and exalted the lowly. The hungry he has filled with good things, the rich sent away empty. He has come to the help of Israel, his servant, mindful of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, of his mercy to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then went back home. So let's start by thinking about the context here. We're In Luke chapter 1, about halfway through that big chapter, where Luke tells us quite a lot of the background of the birth of both Jesus and John the Baptist. So what's the context? Well, just prior to this, Mary has found out that Elizabeth is pregnant, and also Mary herself has found out that she'll be pregnant. And that, of course, happens in the famous Annunciation scene. So if you want to hear an exegesis of the Annunciation scene, verses 26 to 38... It's read several times in the liturgical year, so December 20th every year, and then the Solemnity of the Annunciation, it's read, and then it's read on the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception as well. So that's one of the most common readings in the lectionary. But now we get to verse 39 today. So Mary has found out that Elizabeth is pregnant, so she sets out to go find Elizabeth. At the time of leaving, Mary is either not yet pregnant or has just become pregnant. It's not entirely clear when Mary Mary herself gets pregnant, but certainly Elizabeth is pregnant. That's why Mary leaves, to go visit Elizabeth in her pregnancy. And the text says she goes as quickly as she can to a town in the hill country. So the text doesn't tell us where exactly Elizabeth and Zechariah live, but there is a traditional site called Ein Karim, And that is near Jerusalem, so that would certainly fit the description that we have here. You can actually go there today to the ruins of that village and the place where they think Elizabeth may have lived. And I've actually been there. It's quite a powerful experience. So Ein Karim is is near Jerusalem. 
Uh, and so that's helpful for Zechariah. It's probably about five miles from the temple. So Zechariah works at the temple. So it makes sense that he would live in Ein Karim, which is just outside of Jerusalem. But Mary does not live anywhere near Jerusalem. Mary lives in Nazareth. So for her to get to Elizabeth's house from Nazareth to Ein Karim, we're talking 90 miles. So she, it's a five or six day walk for Mary to go visit Elizabeth. This time, she's probably not accompanied by Joseph, as far as we know. Joseph might have been working at this time still. Um, But she probably did have... She was in a walking caravan of some kind. It was quite common for people to travel from Galilee down to Judea. So she enters the house of, of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb. So the child in Elizabeth's womb leaps when she hears Mary's voice. So the child in Elizabeth's womb is, of course, John. John senses the voice of Mary and leaps for joy. That fulfills what Gabriel said to Zechariah earlier. Remember, when Gabriel appears to Zechariah, one of the things he says is, your child, John, will be filled with the spirit even from his mother's womb. So that was in chapter, uh, verse 15 of chapter 1. And there's also other parallels here. All the way through this text, you'll see some Old Testament echoes quite clear ones, actually. And this particular one, where the child leaps in Elizabeth's womb, this parallels the experience of Rebecca in Genesis 25. So, Rebecca is the mother of Jacob and Esau. And in Genesis 25, the same Greek word there for leap is used to describe her children stirring in her womb. And interestingly, in Rebecca's case, the child, the children moving in her womb represented the fact that Jacob is going to outrank Esau, even though Jacob was younger. And here, Elizabeth's experience when John moves in the womb, that is a sign that Jesus would be greater than his older cousin, John, as we see later in Luke 3, 16. So, um, interesting connections there with Rebecca. Of course, this has implications of how we should think of unborn children as well, because here we have children in the womb responding um, to outside stimuli in a really interesting way. And so there's some implications here about how we think about abortion and the issues around that. It says, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So notice that she's filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural filling. So Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she says in verse 42, remember, she's basically being inspired by the spirit here. Blessed are you among women. Now, what it actually says there in the Greek is it's a superlative. So Elizabeth says to Mary, most blessed are you among women because of the special role God has given her. And Elizabeth, empowered by the spirit, recognizes that. Elizabeth here actually uses the same words that were spoken to the women Jael and Judith, some of the lesser known characters in the Old Testament. The women Jael and Judith are in Judges chapter 5 and then Judges chapter 13. Fascinating parallel here because both women, Jael and Judith, they became famous amongst the Israelites because they killed the opposing enemy military commanders by giving them a mortal blow to the head. Well, Mary is going to bear a son who will crush Satan's head as well. It specifically says that in Genesis 3 verse 15. So notice all these interesting parallels here with women in the Old Testament. Clearly, Mary here is being presented by God as the fulfillment of all of the female archetypes in the Old Testament. Mary is like the perfect Israelite woman. And Elizabeth says to Mary here, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Of course, this is this comes through into the, uh, the Hail Mary as well. When she says blessed is the fruit of your womb, that basically, basically means blessed is your son, Jesus. 
And that tells us probably that Mary is pregnant by this point. When she says blessed, she means God has blessed you. You have been blessed by God. Verse 43, why should I be honored with a visit from the mother of my Lord? Now, what it literally says there, and this is a better translation actually, is why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, notice the focus here is on Mary, not Jesus. The mother of my Lord should come to me. Now, there's lots of discussion here about the word Lord that's used here, because Lord can mean two different things. In the Old Testament, Lord usually means the king, the earthly king. So, Elizabeth here could mean something like, why should it be granted me that the mother of my messianic king is coming to me? And that would certainly fit. However, there is another meaning of the word Lord, and most Catholics, um, in fact, most Christians have taken it to be Lord as in God, because in New Testament times, the Hebrew word YHWH, often pronounced Yahweh, when that comes over into Greek in the New Testament, it gets turned into Kyrios, which is Lord. So, Lord can also mean God in the New Testament. And in fact, that's how Luke uses it throughout his gospel. All of the references to the word Lord so far in chapter 1 of Luke up till this point have been about God. So it makes sense to say that Elizabeth is probably thinking of God. And she is inspired by the Holy Spirit here, remember, so she probably believes Jesus to be God, if we're understanding this correctly. This is the key text which informs the Catholic understanding that Mary is the mother of God. That is a Catholic belief. And mother of God in Greek there, the word is theotokos. This is the first Marian dogma to be defined. Catholics have lots of different Marian teachings. This was the first one to be defined clearly in 431 AD at the Council of Ephesus. The church taught that Mary is the mother of God, and it's based largely on this text here when Elizabeth says, the mother of my Lord has come to me. Now, we're going to see some really interesting links here between the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament and when that arrived in Jerusalem. So, in the time of David, the Ark of the Covenant was brought up to Jerusalem and David celebrated. There's some interesting links here between that scene in 2 Samuel and the scene we have here. Let's have a look at a few fascinating parallels here. There really does seem to be a clear link here. God has set it up deliberately so that the scene we're looking at mirrors the arrival of the ark in Jerusalem. So in 2 Samuel 6 verse 2, it says, David arose and went to a village of Judah to retrieve the ark. Well, here, Mary arises and goes to a village of Judah. In fact, Luke interestingly uses the word Judah here rather than the more common term in the time of Luke was Judea. But here, Luke says Judah, and he might be doing that deliberately to recall the line from 2 Samuel, where David goes up to Judah. So there's the first link. Second link between the scenes. In 2 Samuel 6 verse 10, it says, the ark of the Lord entered the house. Well, here, Mary enters the house in the village of Judah. Thirdly, 2 Samuel 6 verse 15, it says, the people of Israel shout when the ark arrived. And here, Elizabeth shouts for joy when Mary arrives. Interesting, isn't it? In fact, the word shout, which is anaphaneo, that word only occurs here in the New Testament. It's never found anywhere else in the New Testament. But that word is found in the Old Testament, anaphaneo, and it's always used in reference to liturgical procession of the ark. Interesting, isn't it? It really does seem like everything is pointing towards this being a new covenant ark, Mary. 
Fourth similarity, when the ark arrives to, um, to David in Jerusalem, David says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Here, what does Elizabeth say? How is it that the mother of my Lord has come to me? There's clearly got to be something going on here. Next parallel, it says David danced before the ark when it arrives, 2 Samuel 6, verse 16. And here, what does John do? John leaps for joy when the ark arrives in his house. Also, this is an interesting one. The ark stays in the house for three months in Jerusalem. But here, what does Mary do? She stays in th- for three months in the house of Elizabeth. So clearly the parallels here. It's pretty overwhelming evidence that it, we're supposed to understand that Mary is being portrayed as the new covenant, the, the bearer of the new covenant, the new ark. So God's dwelling place, which in the old covenant was literally the Ark of the Covenant, while now God's dwelling place is literally Mary. Verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there will be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Elizabeth here says Mary is blessed or happy, more literally, because Mary believed in God's promises. Unlike Zechariah, who didn't believe God's promises, if you remember. So isn't it so fascinating when you dive into the text in this way, you see all these new links. Verse 46, so Mary is now going to proclaim the prayer that we have come to know as the Magnificat. It's actually a song. And why is it called the Magnificat? Well, in Latin, this prayer starts with the word Magnificat, which is the Latin word for magnify. So the name of the prayer has come over into English as the Magnificat prayer. This is the first of several Lucan songs or canticles, and whenever Luke includes one of these songs that a character sings, it's always to more deeply enter into the significance of the events. Remember that Luke probably had Mary um, give him the information about this scene. So Luke probably interviewed Mary directly to get this information, so she would remember the song that she sang. The Magnificat is basically about how God has worked to bring salvation in a general sense to his people, the Jews. And it's based, uh, it's largely about earthly salvation. So sometimes non-Catholics will see this and talk about, aha, Mary talks about how she needs to be saved by God in this prayer, which is true, she does. But clearly in context, it's about earthly salvation, not salvation as in going to heaven. They didn't really have a concept of that yet. So keep that in mind. When we look in the Magnificat, Mary is basically talking about God saving people out of earthly situations. Now, the Magnificat is largely apparently based on an Old Testament song, the Song of Hannah, in 1 Samuel 2 verses 1 to 10, just after Hannah gives birth to Samuel. And also other Old Testament passages come in here as well about God's favor to Israel and especially Old Testament passages about how God favors the poor and the lowly. So Mary is going to describe here the great reversal that God is bringing about. The first half focuses on Mary's own reasons for praising God, and then the second half broadens to consider what God has done for Israel in general. So first, she's going to talk about how God has shown mercy and favor to her personally, and then how God has shown mercy and favor to Israel. So in this sense, Mary is being revealed not only as the perfect woman, but also as a general representative of the Israelite people as a whole. Now, there's a lot we could say about each line of the Magnificat. It's probably part of one of those parts of scripture that the best way to enter into it is to meditate on it personally, but we'll give it a go. We'll try and do a brief exegesis on each of the lines of the Magnificat. 
So she starts by saying, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, or more literally, my soul magnifies the Lord. So Mary here says that with her whole being, she praises the Lord. She exclaims that she's praising God. This pretty clearly echoes Psalm 34 verses 3 to 4, which say, my soul will glory in the Lord, magnify the Lord with me. Mary would know her scriptures, so these scriptures are probably on her mind as she's saying this. Verse 47, And my spirit exalts in God my Savior. So God has been the Savior of Mary, and we're about to find out in what sense God is the Savior of Mary. Why does she think that she's been saved by God? Now, already the Magnificat sounds pretty similar to the start of Hannah's song. If you look at the start of Hannah's song, Hannah says, "My My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted before God. I will rejoice in your salvation. Verse 48, because he has looked upon his lowly handmaid. So Mary considers herself to be a humble handmaid. And the Greek word here is actually slave. She considers herself a slave of the Lord. She probably doesn't consider herself to be worthy to be the mother of the Messiah or to experience the Holy Spirit and the things she's experiencing in the moment there in Elizabeth's house. She says, yes, from this day forward, all generations will call me blessed. Blessed just means happy or favored. So God, according to Mary, God has shown favor to Mary by making her the mother of the Messiah. And Mary knows that people will continue to think about these events for generations to come. So whenever we as Catholics or as Christians say blessed Mary or blessed Virgin Mary, we're actually fulfilling Mary's own prophecy about herself all generations will call me blessed. So Mary herself gives permission for people to call her blessed. She is certainly favored by God for her role in salvation. Verse 49, for the Almighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So holy basically means sanctified or set apart. So God's name is set apart. It's a very Jewish way of saying that God himself is holy and worthy of worship. So she has just talked there about how she believes God has blessed her by um, making her as an unworthy servant. She considers herself unworthy to be the mother of the Messiah. So she's now going to talk about how God does things for his people in general. And that's going to recapitulate what she's just said about herself, basically. Verse 50, his mercy reaches from age to age for those who fear him. So Mary declares that God shows mercy to anyone who obeys God particularly his covenant people, the Jews. Verse 51, he has shown the power of his arm. Now, it's an interesting phrase, power of his arm, but it's an Old Testament way of saying that God has done powerful, great acts in history. He has routed the proud of heart. A better translation there might be, he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. That's language similar to the Psalms. God upholds the lowly, but scatters the proud. Often, if you read the Psalms, it's pretty hard to miss that kind of language. God blesses his holy ones, but he confounds the plans of the wicked. Verse 52, he has pulled down princes from their thrones and exalted the lowly. And indeed, Mary probably considers herself one of these lowly ones who he exalts. In this world at the time of Mary, the world was dominated by Herods and Caesars. But here, Mary recognizes that it's the child carried by the lowly handmaid from Nazareth whose kingdom is going to be the one that never ends. The hungry he has filled with good things, the rich he has sent away empty. And again, these phrases are similar to Hannah's song, if you look at verses 3 to 8 of Hannah's song. Mary herself is poor, 
she's one of the poor people that she's talking about and she knows that God cares about the poor and comes to their aid. Now, that's the opposite of what society thought at the time. Even Jewish belief was that if you're poor, you're cursed by God. But Mary here recognizes that God comes to the aid of the poor and often confounds the plans of the rich. Verse 54, he has come to the help of Israel, his servant, mindful of his mercy, or more literally, in remembrance of his mercy. Whenever you see that word remembrance, it usually means something to do with covenant. And that's particularly true when Jesus talks about uh, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance is a technical term that refers to covenant faithfulness. So Mary here is probably thinking of God's faithfulness to the covenants he has made with Israel. God always remembers his covenants and comes to the help of his people in the time of their need. And this, again, echoes lots of the Old Testament. If you look at Psalm 98 verse 3, that's pretty clear that that's in the background here. Verse 55, according to the promise he made to our ancestors of his mercy to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Now, this covenant that she's mentioning, the one with Abraham, that's made in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. Mary here sees that what's happening to her with the pregnancy of the, of, of the Messiah is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And indeed it is. And Paul will develop this later. Jesus, who descends from Abraham, is going to fulfill God's promise that he made to Abraham, that he will bless the whole world through Abraham. Jesus, the Messiah, descended from Abraham, is the final fulfillment of that promise. Jesus will bless the world. Now, that's the end of the Magnificat. It's worth pointing out, just as an interesting Catholic history fact, early in the 1900s, there were some disputed uh, translations of this, which said that the Magnificat is actually said by Elizabeth. There were some versions of the Bible which were saying, which were attributing, attributing it to Elizabeth. And the church actually spoke out about that and gave a quite definitive proclamation that this we need to understand that this has been said by Mary. That's in the text of the most reliable translations. It's Mary who says this. And there's really interesting stuff. The Pontifical Biblical Commission um, had a whole very clear teaching that Catholics must understand that it was Mary that said this and not Elizabeth. And in fact, I think they even said that people who were claiming that it was Elizabeth who said the Magnificat probably were doing it from an anti-Catholic bias. So um, there's very few texts of scripture that the church has a specific teaching about, but this is one of them. And the teaching of the church is that Mary proclaims the Magnificat. It's not Elizabeth. And that's what most translations say anyway. But you might, you might encounter that claim every now and then. Now, Pope Benedict XVI wrote something quite fascinating about the Magnificat. This is what he said. The Magnificat is entirely woven from the threads of Holy Scripture, threads drawn from the Word of God. Here we see how completely at home Mary is with the Word of God. With ease, she moves in and out of it. She speaks and she thinks the Word of God. The Word of God becomes her Word, and her Word issues from the Word of God. Here we see how her thoughts are attuned to the thoughts of God, how her will is one with the will of God. Since Mary is completely imbued with the word of God, she is able to become the mother of the word incarnate. So that quote is from Deus Caritas Est, one of Pope Benedict XVI's encyclicals, and it's quite an amazing reflection um, on the Magnificat, very insightful about how Mary uses the word of God. Verse 56, the last verse, Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months. So we talked about how this echoes the Ark of the Covenant. 
Mary stayed with Elizabeth right up until around the time of the birth of John the Baptist, because three months later, John the Baptist would be born. So it's possible that she's there when John the Baptist is born. It doesn't say that, but it's possible, because the next scene that happens is the birth of John the Baptist. Luke might be emphasizing the uh, the fact that she stayed there for three months, because maybe he wants his readers to be reminded that Uh, Mary did not have relations with Joseph in this time, so there's no chance that Jesus is a natural natural pregnancy. Um, Luke might be emphasizing this truly is a virgin birth because Mary was not around Joseph for the first three months of um, her pregnancy. And then she went back home. So after nine, um, after around the time John the Baptist is born, Mary returns to Nazareth. So again, a five or six day walk. So by this time, Mary would be about three months pregnant when she gets back to Nazareth. So the next part, verse 57 to 66, is about the birth of John the Baptist. And that's read on December 23rd every year, if you want to chase that down. Now, there's heaps and heaps of catechism references here. There's so much we can draw from the encounter between Elizabeth and Mary. Um, I'll leave most of the catechism paragraphs about the interaction between Elizabeth and Mary Uh, to a different day. So if you go to December 21st in the liturgical year, um, you'll hear this interaction again, but it hasn't got the Magnificat in it. So if you want to focus on, if you want to hear these catechism paragraphs about Elizabeth in particular, I'd encourage you to look at the podcast from December 21st. So for now, I just want to focus on some of the paragraphs which are about the Magnificat itself. And I'll include as many of these as I can in the show notes. Paragraph 2619, that is why the Canticle of Mary, in Latin, the Magnificat, is the song both of the Mother of God and of the Church, the song of the Daughter of Zion and the new people of God, the song of thanksgiving for the fullness of graces poured out in the economy of salvation, and the song of the poor whose hope is met by the fulfillment of the promises made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his posterity forever. Paragraph 2097, this is about adoration. To adore God is to acknowledge in respect and absolute submission the nothingness of the creature who would not exist but for God. To adore God is to praise and exalt him and to humble oneself, as Mary did in the Magnificat, confessing with gratitude that he has done great things and holy is his name. So here the church sees Mary as the model of adoration. Paragraph 148 is about Mary. It says, The Virgin Mary most perfectly embodies the obedience of faith. By faith, Mary welcomes the tidings and promise brought by the angel Gabriel, believing that with God nothing will be impossible. Elizabeth greeted her. Blessed is she who believed that there will be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It is for this faith that all generations have called Mary blessed. Paragraph 971. All generations will call me blessed. The church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. The church rightly honours the Blessed Virgin with special devotion. Paragraph 273 makes an interesting application to the mystery of God's apparent powerlessness. It says, Only faith can embrace the mysterious ways of God's almighty power. This faith glorifies in its weaknesses in order to draw itself to Christ's power. The Virgin Mary is the supreme model of this faith, for she believes that nothing will be impossible for God, and was able to magnify the Lord. For he he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
So that's an interesting application there about when we sometimes think that God is powerless to do things. Mary is our model of faith that nothing is impossible for God. Paragraph 2599, I think this is a really interesting teaching actually about Jesus. It says, The Son of God who became Son of the Virgin learned to pray according to his human heart. He learns the formulas of prayer from his mother, who kept in her heart and meditated upon all the great things done by the Almighty. So here in the Magnificat, we see that Mary knows how to pray. And the Catholic Church teaches that Jesus' own prayers, uh, the way Jesus learned to pray, would have largely been taught to him by Mary. We often forget that, that Mary would have been the primary teacher of Jesus as he's growing up. Last paragraph, 422, and this is a good way to finish. The good news, God has sent his son. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoptive adoption as sons. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God has visited his people. He has fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham and his descendants. He acted far beyond all expectation. He has sent his own beloved son. So we'll leave it there for today. I hope you learned something new from this quite well-known text. And please share it around if you think others would benefit from it. We'll continue to look at the Gospels in the coming days. 